Support for I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere comes from MX Publishing, with the largest catalog of new Sherlock Holmes books in the world. New novels, biographies, graphic novels, and short story collections about Sherlock Holmes. Find them at mxpublishing.com. And by the Wessex Press, the premier publisher of books about Sherlock Holmes and his world. Find them online at wessexpress.com. And from listeners like you, who support us through Patreon. Bonus material, thank you gifts, and more await at patreon.com slash I Hear of Sherlock. I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere, episode 243, On the Trail of Sherlock Holmes. I hear of Sherlock everywhere since you became astronomer. In a world where it's always 1895, comes I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere, a podcast for devotees of Mr. Sherlock Holmes, the world's first unofficial consulting detective. I've heard of you before. You're Holmes the meddler, Holmes the busybody, Holmes the Scotland Yard jack in office. <laughs> The game's afoot as we discuss goings-on in the world of Sherlock Holmes enthusiasts, the bigger street irregulars, and popular culture related to the great detective. As we go to press, sensational developments have been reported. So join your hosts, Scott Monty and Burke Walder, as they talk about what's new in the world of Sherlock Holmes. You couldn't have come at a better time! Welcome once again to I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere, the first podcast for Sherlock Holmes devotees where it's always 1895. I'm Scott Monty. I'm Bert Wolder. And Bert, what are you what are you on the trail of these days? <laughs> what am I on the trail of? Well, you know, it's mostly just obscure things. These these things that during the course of a day, you know, you'll see a newspaper. And you'll, or you'll find an old notebook where you've written down a book that you really wanted to read, mm. and that uh, count, that in, that sums up sort of <laughs> a lot of my daily experience. <laughs> it's just following little scraps of paper around and trying to piece them together like a puzzle. Yes, yeah, that's all, it. All while eating trail mix, I would imagine. <laughs> yeah, I love the raisins. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, hey, you know, before we uh, hop into things here, I just I wanted to bring something up here. This isn't exactly Sherlockian, but I know a lot of people who enjoy Sherlock Holmes also enjoy things related to uh, the medieval world. You know, the Society for Creative Anachronism and cosplay and things like that. We see a lot of that come up. I just saw a news report yesterday that workers at the Medieval Times... You know, that, that restaurant chain yes. uh, where you can go and dine like a slob. Um, <laughs> are, are, well, it's more than that. It's, you know, it's a medieval times, you know, sort of recre attempts to recreate, you know, the feeling of uh, the medieval court. And well, they have talented actors who do things. That's exactly right. And, and uh, Dave Jameson from, I think, the Huffington Post says what they deal with is, is crazy. Guests spooking the horses, grabbing the falcon, even putting their hands on the queen, and they want better pay and safety and respect. And as a result, medieval times workers are looking to unionize. And I thought, well, that's fascinating, but I can't imagine uh, medieval times workers in a union, maybe a guild, 
That's right. right? But well, of course, a union. It's, <laughs> it's got to be a guild. They have to start with a guild. Yeah. Yeah. The Medieval yeah. Times Actors Guild. Yeah, well, they need, I don't know what you would call the headquarters of a guild, but they do need a guild. A guildery? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, that's Gilderoy. He was oh. from J.K. Rowling's <laughs> stories. No, but you need something like that. You know, you need the right setting. You need a guild and uh, you need um, aprons and shields. <laughs> yeah. and Uniforms, and yeah. Coat of arms yeah. and Secret mystic handshake. rites. Secret oh, handshake. mystic yeah. rites, secret handshakes, oh, yes. Yeah. And amulets, you need amulets. Mm. And that sabers. Sounds, that sounds radical. It sounds, it sounds Gilda radical. Hey, you know, <laughs> well, we shouldn't be talking about Saturday Night Live or Gilda Radner <laughs> at this point. But, you know, what we really, look, the workers should control the means of production. I think that's what we're talking about. <laughs> oh, boy. Well, now we're now we're going down. I'm I'm getting a bit of a red scare coming up here. Well, oh, the red circle. Let's talk about before that we scare off our listeners. <laughs> let's just remind people that the show notes for this episode are available at ihose.co slash ihose two four three. That's all lowercase ihose.co slash ihose two four three. That'll take you directly to the ihearofsherlock.com page where you will find oh links to uh, today's. Uh, interview guest and his work, as well as other ways to get in touch with us. We certainly want you to participate in the uh, canonical couplet quiz coming up after the interview. And uh, our email address there is comment at IHearOfSherlock.com. That's how you submit your uh, winning entry for the quiz, where you can possibly win a prize. In, in, in uh, this case, that means a copy of the book on the trail of Sherlock Holmes. So stay tuned for that. And of course, we want to remind people that Patreon is available as well. If you'd like to support us on an ongoing basis, you know, for as little as $12 a year or even less, if you actually pledge for the whole year, I think there's a 10% discount. Um, you can be a part of the Patreon community. And occasionally we do post exclusive content there for all of our Patreon supporters. And we have gifts for people at a larger level as well. So take a look at that. Stephen Browning has written a series of books with Norfolk themes, the latest of which uh, visitors historic Britain, Norwich and Norfolk, Stone Age to the Great War, is published by Pen and Sword from February 2020. He's also written The World of Charles Dickens, and in Asia, he's written several books aimed at helping young professionals with their English skills, two of which have won top awards in Taiwan. And of course, the, his latest book is On the Trail of Sherlock Holmes, which is both a walking guide as well as a historic background and perspective on Sherlock Holmes. You can find Stephen online at stephenbrowning.co.uk. Steve Browning, welcome to I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere. Thank you very much, Scott. It's a very great pleasure to be on your podcast. Well, you are clearly uh, someone who is of the British dialect, uh, coming to us from overseas today. Why don't you tell us how you first encountered Sherlock Holmes in your life? Well, uh, you noticed I'm British. That's that's. Uh... <laughs> we're, we're nothing if not astute over here. Yeah. Well, I think it was uh, when I was about 12 years old. I think like a lot of other people um, about that age, I, I was thrilled to be given a book. 
I think it might have been the Hound of the Baskervilles as a birthday present, as I recall. And um, I read it and I was thrilled to my core. I'd never read anything like that before in my life. It's very exciting. It's got a, a mastermind at work. Uh, it taught you that if you tried hard, you could perhaps be a little bit like this mastermind too, if you could observe. Um, and um, it was very exciting from start to finish, which I believe is uh, what... Um, I think he's for Bram Stoker wrote to him. Is I think it's in the book and said uh, it said just that. Congratulated uh, Arthur Conan Doyle on maintaining such a a long period of suspense, which of course Bram Stoker was to be given credit for when he he did his Dracula. But um, anyway, I was about twelve years old. I thought it was incredibly thrilling. I read it and I think it's one of the more difficult stories for a twelve-year-old because it's long. Um, so when I actually came to read the shorter stories, I, I just couldn't believe how exciting they were. Yeah. Um, and how atmospheric of 1895 <clears throat> and a land of mists and roaring fires and brandy and water, whatever that was. Um, and Sherlock Holmes lounging in his uh, rooms in Baker Street puffing at a pipe, solving mm. the world's most impenetrable problem. So mm. I think it was about 12 when I first came across him, Scott. Um, I've been reading him regularly since. I was reading him this morning. I read The Adventure of the Blue Carbuncle just after I got out of bed. I, I, there's something about the stories that's immortal and never, never, never lessens. The impact of them never lessens. Mm. So um, if and there is anybody out there who is not, who is older than 12 and they they haven't read them for the first time, I'm sure you'll agree that they've got a most wonderful, exciting time ahead of them. And I quite envy them. Mm. And Steve, did you encounter other people who also shared your interest? When, what, uh, uh, was there a point in your, in your life when you encountered other people who shared this interest, any of the local groups or societies? Um, I think at school there was always there were always one or two people who were also into Sherlock Holmes, but um, I, I think I, I've, I encountered groups really later in my life when I I lived in London for twenty years and I shared various houses with groups of various people and there was an awful lot of them who um, who who loved Sherlock Holmes as well and we used to go out. On walks, I mean, this the book we're talking about now is, I hope, comprehensive and um, pretty much putting up all the places you can go and visit in London and indeed in England. But at that time, um, there, there, were no, there was nothing really to help you. Um, so we used to devise short walks around Fleet Street, around St Paul's, um, Covent Garden, Baker Street, of course, Regent's Park. Um, and um, we would go and um, look at the places where his, he actually did his magic. So that, that was more uh, when I was an adult. And I think that's still so to this day. I have some very good friends now who are um, Sherlock Holmes buffs. Mm. Mm. Well, and how we envy you for being in the homeland. Uh, essentially in the heart of where so many of these tales took place. I mean, um, 
I think part of the allure of the Hound of the Baskervilles in particular is the wonderful setting of Dartmoor and the great Crimpen Mire. And, you know, there it is in your own home country, on your own doorstep, as it were. Uh, it, it must just be fascinating to be surrounded by that on nearly a daily basis. Well, that's true. I can't deny that. Um, as you say, it's Dartmoor. There's also, of course, some settings uh, up in the north in uh, uh, Birmingham. Um, but um, most of it, I think, most of the settings are in or around London, aren't they? Mm. I mean, the book has seven walks around London specifically and then the eighth chapter covers all sorts of other places in north London north of the river as we say and south of the river as we say um, and those places are mentioned but um, and you can visit them but they're, they're not sufficiently close together to make a coordinated walk mm. like for instance Hampstead obviously and our friend Mr Milverton um, and um, the wonderful dog chase. Do you remember? I'm sure you do. In South London, where the, the dog gets... Toby. Toby yeah. the dog. In the sign of four, sure. That's yeah. right. You know, and so you can you can actually take a walk where Toby went. Um, and um, there are various other examples like that. Individual places you can visit if you feel like having a trip out uh, with yeah. a Sherlock Holmes um, location at the end of it. Yeah. Or, or you can, you know, or you can get a Dartmoor, as you say, or you get a Birmingham. Or, yeah. yeah. Well, you've, you've really done something wonderful here, though, in this book on the trail of um, Sherlock Holmes, because it's not, it's not the first book by any means or the first resource by any means that will enable people who are interested, you know, to see certain places in London. But what's really remarkable about the book it, and it goes from your dedication, you know, sort of straight through. Your dedication here is to every child who has picked up a magnifying glass, <laughs> made deductions by inspecting a broken twig, a footprint in the mud, or scruffy old hat. And it's, it's so much more than um, a book of walks, because what you've done, you know, here, which I think is really distinctive and remarkable is in the first 12, 14 pages, you've written a terrific, credible and friendly introduction and summary of Conan Doyle and, and the world of Sherlock Holmes. And so, you know, you really, you really have produced here a wonderful multifaceted introduction to the character, the literary agent, the times, the places. And you can tell in just talking to you that it stemmed from you know, your 12-year-old experience and your sense of the mystery and the walks that you began doing yourself, you know, and it's really, um, really something special, I think. Well, I think so. I, I think it, it was a very much a, a labour of love. And that's a very mis overused term, but it wasn't intentional. I didn't intentionally start to write a book. I was on holiday, actually, with my companion. I've got it here my constant companion, the Penguin Complete Sherlock Holmes, 1930 edition, which I love and I've used as the basis of the book. I was on holiday and I was lounging on a sun recliner and I was just reading another Sherlock Holmes story and it just occurred to me, wouldn't it be interesting to go through every single page of every one of the 56 stories and four novels and write down 
precisely where Sherlock Holmes is at any one time. And I just thought it was kind of sort of fairly geeky, silly thing I would do. Uh, and I did it. I've, I've still got the pages over on my shelf here, which I'll keep, I think, as a keepsake. Um, and then when I got them all written down, it occurred to me to, as you say, enlarge the picture slightly by, OK, let's go back to 1895. Let's compare each of these places to how it was in 1895. For instance, the Strand, how was that? And how is it now? Has it changed? Tottenham Court Road, for example, totally different now, very high end now, but it's in the venture of the Blue Carbuncle, it's very much a working class area of uh, hardware stores and, and, and flower shops and that kind of small businesses. So I thought, let's compare the two, 1895 to now, all the locations. Let's have a look at what's going on in those locations in 1895, a little bit of history, if it's interesting, and especially if it's relevant, of course. Um, let's compare the literary scene. Uh, let's have a look at the literary scene in 1895. Uh, all the other writers like H.G. Wells and, oh my goodness, there's so many of them. Alan Bennett and, not Alan Bennett, um, hold on, can you cut a bit there, please? I've got my writers. Um, let's say, um, yet to enlarge it by, enlarge the picture by bringing in all the authors of that period and compare them to uh, Conan Doyle and perhaps now. What did Conan Doyle think about those authors? He was actually quite impressed. The general public, the general press didn't think very much of the uh, writers that followed Thackeray and Dickens. But Conan Doyle begged to disagree. He thought they were pretty good. Um, so that's how it started. It started as purely personal piece of research. And then it occurred to me to enlarge that research. And then it occurred to me, well, other people might be interested in that as well. If I'm interested in it, other people would be. And I, I've searched the internet and I had a look at other books that may be on the subject. And I, I didn't think there was anything comprehensive. Um, so I thought I would start to write a book. And you're very kind to mention that it's a friendly style. That's very, very important to me. Um, I'm a great fan of Charles Dickens. I have written a book on him, The World of Charles Dickens. Um, and he, he said that a storyteller should be like a favourite uncle talking in your ear. And that's what I've tried to make the style of this book. I want it to be friendly. I want people to enjoy it. Um, and um, I work very hard on that. Yeah, I mean that 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 comes across. I mean, this is clearly, um, you know, I've, I've got a collection of uh, Sherlock Holmes walks from the Sherlock Holmes Society of London. Uh, they they put they put them out, I think, in the Sherlock Holmes Journal, and then uh, kind of pamphletized them uh, over the course of years. And it's a wonderful companion to have if you just want to follow a map and and go from step A to step B, um, and and certainly. Uh, your seven walks, well, eight walks, really, with the uh, with the additional one there outside of London, um, you can follow the map. But as you say, there there are stories that you tell. There is additional color that you put in, and it's clear that it's very uh, enjoyable to you. And as a result, it's enjoyable to the reader or the walker as well. Well, I'm very very pleased to hear that. Thank you. Um... 
I think you probably well. I think you heard of me through the New York Times. They they reviewed it. They were very kind enough, to, kind enough to say that as well. That um, it's a meander through a very interesting time and and place. Um, the time mm-hmm. post Victorian London was well. I think we're all fascinated by eighteen ninety five. That kind of era. Um, Street urchins, they say. I don't think I've actually got any street urchins in it, but I get the general drift. They were they were saying that it's um, it should be enjoyable for people who maybe only have a passing interest in Sherlock Holmes because it. Uh, I tried to to get it to evoke the period as well. Yeah. Well, you know, you've did that, and and in fact, that is how we first encountered the book. Laurie Sunderland at the Times had a section at the end of May on new travel books as part of their summer reading recommendations. And she wrote in her review that the merely Holmes curious will also find much to love as each walk wanders through the heart of London and its most familiar literary era, a post-Dickens world of street urchins, timeless pubs, and Victorian curiosities. And she says, you know, you provide tantalizing insights into Holmes, the man, and um, the phenomenon known to tradition as the great game, which, which you discuss in the book, in which Holmes is a real person. And it comes to seem, she wrote, as if the Holmesian world is indeed a part of the real world. If one follows the character through the streets of London, a set of concrete and three-dimensional clues might strengthen that deduction. I just thought it was a remarkably uh, thoughtful review. It's a beautiful piece of writing as well, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. That is, that's very, very nice. Thank you, Laurie, for that. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, that, that was, was the idea. I, I want it to appeal. I hope it does appeal to people who may just have a passing interest in the character, yeah. but upon hopefully going for the walks or, or, or reading about them, because I include pictures too, so you can actually, I hope, read it from an armchair and still get the atmosphere. I hope that, that, that by that process, people will come to read the stories themselves. Yeah. yeah, and that's a lovely point, because the photographs really are first rate. You know, in, in so many of these books these days, the photographs are printed on the same paper stock as the rest of the text. But here, you know, they're beautifully beautiful collection of black and white photographs that are printed with great contrast on the right sort of paper. And it's a shame, I suppose, that that's become the rarity these days, but it really does um, does work quite well in the book. Yeah, thank you very much. Um, I took, I think, all of them myself. Apart, I've got a, a great friend called uh, Daniel Tink, who's a very talented photographer here in Norfolk, and uh, I've used a couple of his, but um, photography used to be a hobby of mine, so... Mm. Uh, that that fitted in quite well. Um, so. That's a familiar phrase from the canon. Um, I think Redheaded League. So uh, let's take a quick break here. And uh, after this word from our sponsor, we'll be right back with more with Stephen Browning. Stay tuned. One of the great Sherlockian periodicals is back, the 2021 Sherlock Holmes Review, edited by Steve Doyle, art direction by Mark Gagan, with all new contributions from Nicholas Meyer, Robert Doherty, Frank Cho, Anne-Margaret Lewis, Steve Hockensmith, Les Klinger, Jimmy Aiken, 
and more. 118 pages about Sherlock Holmes. The illustrators, community, collecting, comics, reviews, film and TV, scholarship, including new artwork, Irene Adler drawn by the inimitable Frank Cho. It looks like a book and reads like a magazine. It's the Sherlock Holmes Review. Get your first edition copy of this essential 2021 Sherlockian annual, the all-new Sherlock Holmes Review, at wessexpress.com. We are back speaking with Stephen Browning, author of On the Trail with Sherlock Holmes, which comes to us via Pen and Sword History. Uh, They're the publishers. Uh, You can find this book uh, certainly at the link that we'll provide in the show notes or wherever you choose to buy your books. It's available everywhere. Now, Stephen, we were talking about uh, this, uh, you know, the wonderful photographs that you you took and uh, that are included in the book. I have to imagine that as you uh, retraced your steps, <laughs> figuratively and literally, uh, that you actually walked every one of these walks that you talk about. Um, can you share with us any favorite sites, any favorite moments perhaps that come to mind as you've uh, trod the, the streets of London in Holmes's footsteps? Oh my, there are so many of them really. Um, I guess I'd have to start by talking about Baker Street itself. Um, I'll include a couple of plaques, one to Arnold Bennett and one to H.G. Wells that uh, are on, on a, a block of flats called Chiltern Court as you enter Baker Street. It was really thrilling to go to Baker Street because you could see the Baker Street Museum two-thirds of the way down on the left as you're coming from the station. And there's a, a very happy and chatty queue going all the way down the street of Sherlock Holmes fans. Um, some with deer stalkers, which as we know he never actually had. Um, some with pipes, mostly empty. Um, as a, it's a very friendly uh, sort of uh, nice place to walk up Baker Street. It's quite, it's quite a short street. And then you have Regent's Park at the end of it. So that was a very magical place to start. Um, I'm looking at the pictures as I'm talking to you now. Um, Going down to two Upper Wimpole Street, where it's got a plaque, it's a beautiful house, where Conan Doyle first hired a very expensive um, surgery and uh, half a waiting room, and he said that, in fact, he was to discover they were both waiting rooms. But he started writing Sherlock Holmes in those rooms because he had nothing else to do. He said he wasn't troubled by the bell from 10 o'clock in the morning till 3 in the afternoon. So that's a very, very wonderful place to go and have a look at. You can stand outside and have a look at that and imagine him coming in there at 10 in the morning and going home again at 3. Oh, uh, Charing Cross Station I'm looking at here. That's um, the Bruce Partington plans. Uh, had its denouement there, didn't it? Um, just down the road from that, you've got the Sherlock Holmes pub and Northumberland Avenue, um, where Holmes and Watson went for their Turkish baths. Um, and Conan Doyle himself, ha- himself had some adventures there. He stayed in a hotel in Northumberland Avenue. We're not sure of the what and he stayed in because they're very, very expensive down there. And I think he probably would have stayed in something called the Golden Cross, which is at the end near Charing Cross Station. But uh, 
He actually saved a man from suicide. Who's going to jump in? A man was jumping into the Thames. He went for a walk one evening, and this man was jumping into the Thames, and he managed to grab him by the legs, and uh, dragged him back. Um, and saved his life there. And that's also also where um, where Watson sees a newsstand which announces that uh, Holmes has been attacked, and he's so flabbergasted that he, he takes the paper and forgets to pay the vendor and then remembers and pays the vendor and then sumps against the wall and, and reads about his great friend being attacked full of terror there oh then there's strand dickens went up and down the strand all the time a lot of david copperfield and other novels uh, martin chuzzlewit take place in the strand and fleet street but conan doyle used it a lot as well. He used the Adelphi Theatre, which we picture in the book here. Uh, he made a fortune with the Speckled Band, um, which he put on there. And Dickens, indeed, made a fortune at the theatre before him as well. It's exactly the same theatre. So that's a very special place. Um, one thing that amused me, he says in his autobiography, Conan Doyle says that uh, when he put on a Speckled Band, he bought a live snake, and he called it the pride of his life and one of the uh, critics sniffy critics said that the play was okay but it was a, he had a, it had a palpably artificial serpent and Conan Doyle said that he was tempted to offer the critic a great deal of money to go to bed with it <laughs> that, that's that's the strand and then of course you've got Simpsons there as well where Holmes and Watson dine that's just up from the Delphi on the other side of the road um, and then you go down Fleet Street that leads on to Fleet Street which has got the old Cheshire Cheese uh, pub, which uh, Conan Doyle spoke at. In, in in well, he was speaking. It was to honour Doctor Johnson, and um, Conan Doyle said he he didn't actually think very much of his English. His English was for tombstones, not books, and nobody bought his books. That that's from the Guardian newspaper of 1926. And then we got to St Paul's, and I mean, that walk is just fantastic. And, oh, well, it's just studied. I mean, you go in Piccadilly, in the centre of London, you can go and see the Criterion Bar where Watson dropped in um, and met. Who was it? Stamford, was it? Stamford, his friend. Yeah, that's he right. was looking for accommodation. Yeah. And um, that's now a very, very posh looking restaurant. Um, and you've got the British Museum, uh, which features several times in the canon. Uh, you've got Tottenham Court Roads, we mentioned before, in my personal favourite which is probably The Adventure of the Blue Carbuncle I think I'm very, I'd be very interested to know what yours are actually favourites um, I yeah, could I go mean, on but I won't but you, yeah what, what are your favourites what we've I'd got love, here uh, I think what's what's wonderful about London is that there's such a concentration of uh, of active locations from the stories uh, and and you can stand in any one place in in some of these walks and around you is swirling a number of stories it's not as if there was you know simply one place one story i mean these are places that holmes and watson and their clients uh, appear in or near again and again. So it, it breathes life into this city, a city, of course, that was already teeming with life, as Holmes says in the Blue Carbuncle, uh, four million people jostling each other about within a few square miles. Uh, so there are uh, just so many opportunities to, uh, to take from it. Uh, 
Uh, Bert, you you were over in uh, Europe for a, a while as part of your overseas assignment. I'm sure you went to London frequently. Any of these places uh, ring a bell or uh, oh, tinkle a, an, an active <laughs> uh, reminiscence in your in your mind? Well, that's the magic, you know, particularly when you're American, of making a visit to London. I was lucky enough to live in London for uh, a time. I lived in Brussels for four years, but I lived in London for six or eight months, too. Whereabouts? Oh, well, I was a Mayfair gent. My company had had a, um, you know, I was going to, I was, I happened into, one of the people who were working for the company went home and uh, the company had leased a flat um, at Barclay Square. Oh my goodness me! So, how how so, market can you get? So they said, you know, would you mind? Would you mind? Would you mind? And the offices, the company's offices, were in St James's Square. So I said, oh well, let me see so. if I understand this. I have a, a flat I don't have to pay for in Berkeley Square, and I can walk to St James's Square. Okay, all right, I'll put up. With that. <laughs> I'll, I'll give so, it a go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's, but you know, that's the lovely thing because you turn every corner, and there's, as Stephen has said, there's. Um, you know, there's some other reminiscence. I mean, my favorite places are really, um, really every any place that's mentioned. I mean, Simpsons in particular, Fleet Street. You know, like you, I, I have other interests. And so going to Fleet Street and thinking about Dr. Thorndike, mm-hmm. um, the places that uh, uh, one encounters because of the other things you read, you know, being in mm. Piccadilly, Regent's Park, mm-hmm. down by the Thames, the Embankment. It's... Mm-hmm. Um, and the point, I suppose, Stephen, and we've discussed this in our podcasts over the years, is that in the world of Sherlock Holmes, in addition to Holmes and Watson, London and England and the geography of England and the trains and Norfolk and Yorkshire, all of these are characters, really, and Dartmoor, obviously, mm. in in the Sherlock Holmes stories. Mm. And that's one of the lovely things that... that um, you know, you've brought together in in the book, in addition to, you know, just the landscape and the history and your obvious affection for it, you've also got here um, a guide to Holmes on the screen and the actors who played various roles. You've mm. got a chronology. You've you've reproduced the timeline of the stories, and I'm interested in in your source for that because there have been so. So many chronologies, but you've got the actors mm. who've played Sherlock Holmes, and mm. you've got a miscellany, a section in the book where mm. you can find out about pastiches, Watson's war wound, the Sherlock Holmes day of 22 May, chosen <laughs> because it's Sir Arthur's birthday and so, so on. So, um, you know, in a way, it's a love letter to, uh, to the world of Sherlock Holmes. But what chronology did you use for, the, for your timeline here? Uh, well, I researched it extensively over a number. Ah, um, so it's your chronology. Yeah. Oh, excellent. Um, and you say, as you say, I mean, there is dis- there is dispute over yes. some dates, as we know. I just tried to look at all the source material I could find, and then use my common sense to try and work out the most likely ones. Hmm. Um, so. Uh, yeah, I think it's very important to try and get get that in because I wanted you know people to have a complete book. I didn't want them to have to go away and look somewhere else for the set of stories. And, uh, yeah, 
Mm. Well, and uh, I, what a what a wonderful hidden gem that, uh, for those who are interested in Sherlockian chronology. I know there are a, a limited number of chronologies that they use, and, and uh, a wonderful surprise on the trail of Sherlock Holmes is a uh, an, another chronology for you chronologists to add to your bibliographies. Something to uh, to track down. Uh, Steve, you mentioned. Uh, with respect to chronologies, that there are disputes. What about locations? I mean, uh, one of the things that Conan Doyle did to bring London to life, the settings to life, is he named actual places. But we also know that a place like 221B Baker Street didn't actually exist in his time. What about other uh, fictional or... uh, uh, perhaps uh, imagined places in London uh, can you think of where you would follow your own nose and say, well, you know, this place actually corresponds to X in the canon. Do you have any examples like that? Um, yeah, one that springs to mind is the, red, the headquarters of the Red-Headed League. Uh, where exactly is that? I mean, um, if you go down Fleet Street and off Fleet Street, there are so many little alleys and... Uh, and uh, crisscrossing places where it could have been. Um, and I think I, I give a couple uh, of likely ones. I don't, I don't come down <laughs> on the, with, uh, to say I, I know for certain, but I, I say, you know, the headquarters could have been here or it could have been just... I think mean, Poppins Court, I think, is one of the ones I say it could have been in. Um, um, what else in that area? Uh, the, I think some of the uh, some of the streets around the British Museum as well uh, are slightly we don't not don't know for sure where they are. Um, the Alpha Inn, where is who's the the chap in who who loses his goose? Um, Henry Baker, um, right? Henry Baker, yeah. yeah. He was he, at the, he, the Goose he, Club at the Alpha the Inn. The Goose Club there, and exactly where is that? Um, it's fantastic. It's a fantastic uh, opportunity to try some local ales and food around that area and all the little pubs. We know it's a pub on a corner going down to Hoburn, but that's all we know. I, I couldn't find it. Hmm. When, on my first visit to London, I actually had lunch at, I think it was the Museum Tavern. Uh, Museum Tavern, opposite the British Life. Exactly. The yeah, yeah. And that, was, that was purported mm. to, to have been possibly one of the stand-ins for the Alpha Inn, but who knows? It looks like it, doesn't it? Yeah. And I'm sure the pub would love to um, to say it is. They didn't and have a goose club when I uh, asked. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, they should institute that. They'd probably get a lot of business. It's a great idea. Yeah. yeah. Um, I don't think you guys have told me yet what your favourite stories are. Can I turn the tables and interview you two for that? <laughs> Oh goodness! I mean, this is this is like asking someone uh, who their favorite child is. Um, I know that's why I'm doing it, just to be in <laughs> Yeah, wonderful. Um, you know, I I have a I, I don't know why, but I have a special place in my heart for uh, the three students. I oh think yeah, the the academic setting. Um, you know, the wonderful uh, illustrations that. Sidney Paget did for this particular, uh, and and Frederick Dorsteel for this particular story, um, 
uh, the, the the story of redemption at the end, uh, mm-hmm. you know, the classic mm-hmm. uh, locked room mystery, as it were. Mm-hmm. Um, I just think there's, there's a lot to offer it. Um, and I happen to like green peas. And, of course, we know the landlady babbled of them at 7.30. So, so <laughs> nice combination. Yeah, I, I, that's, yeah, fine. I love that one as well. I was just going to mention, you reminded me talking about that story, yeah. that stories have a particularly uh, exciting tone to them when Sherlock Holmes breaks the law or breaks, I mean, um, when he takes the law into his own hands and acts as judge and jury. Yeah. Um, and I, I should have mentioned that before. That's one of the things that's thrilling to a 12-year-old boy. <laughs> yeah. Right. Uh, that the hero breaks the law sometimes and, uh, and sets himself up as a sort of omniscient being um, who can be both judge and jury. Um, and that's what happens, isn't it, at the end of the, the Blue Carbuncle? Yeah. And uh, some others as well, yes. Mm. Um, hmm. Well, you know, the and the imagery associated, you know, with the blue carbuncle, with the the um, the perpetrator on his knees begging Holmes for yes. forgiveness in that great yes. pageant illustration. <laughs> yeah. But there's so many different lenses for which you can select your favorite stories. I mean, the well, um, yeah, but what 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 are those lenses? I mean, well, you know, the, one the is mood you're one, in or. Well, no, one is, you know, just the atmosphere and the mastery. I mean, you, early on in our conversation, you, you mentioned, you know, this mastermind quality about Holmes. I remember, you know, the great moments in the speckled band when yeah. uh, Holmes puts everything together. And, of course, that ma- you know, these magical, dramatic scenes. Did you see it, Watson? You know? <laughs> yes. Um, and, of course, like. Dramatic comes, flourish, yeah. Yes, Sorry. a dramatic yeah. flourish, and it comes after the visual. The chase up the Thames in sign of four against Jonathan oh, Small and Tonga. <laughs> um, you know, those are the things that stand out. The wonderful, the fun and humor and Dickensian quality of the Red-Headed League. Yes. Um, yeah. and, the, and just from a purely literary standpoint, I've always felt that The Valley of Fear as a novel, you know, is, is really... Doyle at the top of his game. Mm. Um, you know, and even there you've got these lines, you know, this now early mention of Moriarty, where mm. at the end Holmes says, you must give me time, Watson, you must give mm. me time. Mm. Um, uncanonically to, <laughs> to, to introduce uh, Professor Moriarty yet again to Watson. Yeah. Well, that's an interesting point too, Scott, isn't it? Because um, you're talking about um, Conan Doyle being at the top of his game. Yeah. One of the reasons he killed Holmes off, wasn't it, was that he thought he was not at the top of his game when he was writing Holmes, and he wanted to be at the top of his game. He, he was fascinated, wasn't he, between what, what separates a good writer from a great one. Um, yeah. And um, his, his whole life he had no idea of what he'd done, what mm. he'd achieved, that he would, be so, he would be immortal, he would be responsible for all our cop shows now, basically. <laughs> Uh, I was reading this morning. Now, can I just say that I was got, I put a quote here. What uh, in his autobiography? Uh, you probably know this. You're aware, I'm sure. That uh, I got it reading from the book. There, he said there are three things Conan Doyle believed which render a story very good. The first is that it is intelligible. The second is that it is interesting, and the third that it is clever. 
Um, so he thought intelligible, interesting and clever. You have to put all of those things together to be a great writer. And he says Dickens and Thackeray put those together. Mm. But somebody like George Meredith only did the third, which is, what's that? That's the clever bit. So <laughs> I think it's very, very interesting for, for any writer trying to write a good story. Um, well, and I, I think one of the things that Conan Doyle succeeded at, and, and you mentioned uh, as a 12-year-old, uh, you know, you started with one of the novels. Um, he managed to do most of his Sherlock Holmes activity in short story form. And I think in addition to being uh, intelligible, interesting, and clever, he knew how to be succinct. And I mean, think about Dickens, mm. think about some of his other uh, mid to late Victorian uh, author of, and writer friends. Um, I mean, Anthony Trollope, I mean, oh. boy, uh, I they knew him. how to go on. Uh, but yes. Conan Doyle was able to actually <laughs> encapsulate this and keep it interesting and keep that suspense going and keep us interested in these characters over the long arc of the canon. And I think that's mm. part of the magic yeah. that he brought mm. to the literary world. Mm. Yeah. yeah, I think, well, I think that's true. And, you know, the, sometimes it works to his disadvantage because he, um, in some of the short stories too, you know, he had the great sense of not, not talking past the clothes. And there are some, <laughs> some adventures of Sherlock Holmes that just sort of stop, you know, and, and you're left... Can you give me an example? Um, well, I, is it... Is it um, the Blue Carbuncle? And, of course, it's Silver Blaze, you know, when, uh, when after uh, one has worked out the mystery, there is a bit more conversation. But I think that, is it, is it Carbuncle where, uh, you know, Holmes tends to dismiss what comes next in a sentence. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. And yeah. the nice part about yeah. that, of course, for us, is that it leads to lots of, lots of speculation. But, yeah. but Doyle yeah. knew that, okay, I'm done now. And... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, it's interesting. You, you talk about the horse racing. He, he he didn't like horse racing, did he? And he didn't know much about it, apparently. No. He said, sport is what a man does, not what a horse does. I, mean, right. I think he said that in his autobiography. <laughs> um, you know, one, and one he, the... he gets it wrong sometimes. And But he says, I think, in that particular story... Sorry, I'll stop him. But he says, I think, in that particular story, he knows he got it wrong, in, in part, um, the horse racing world. But he said it didn't matter because it didn't really affect <laughs> the story. So the story was all right, quote, unquote. So um, I think he had a sense of humour as well. He had a, a sense of what he was good at and what he wasn't good at. Yeah, um, no, I think that's true. Well, one of the things I wanted to make sure that we mentioned or got into in talking with you, and you mentioned this, you know, just a few minutes ago in terms of, um, you know, the writing and the writing quality, is that, you know, you have written other books. You've written a series of books with Norfolk themes, including Visitors, Historic Britain, Norwich and Norfolk, from the Stone Age to the Great War. You've written The World of Charles Dickens. And I know that you've written several books aimed at helping young professionals with their English skills. So I was yes, just curious yes. about that, since that certainly seems to be, um, you know, a thread that, that runs through, um, you know, your talents and interests. Uh, well, yeah, the, I mean, the history bit's not that surprising, because I studied history at university. Um, and I've always loved local history. So... I, I'll, I'll write a local history book at the drop of a hat, and I've written a, quite a few. Um, the the English books in, in Asia are very, very interesting. I think there are about 20 of them now. I have two publishers in China, one in Taiwan, 
and um, I spend quite a, at least a few months of every year over in that part of the world writing and promoting the books. They came about because I have a, I have a very good friend who's a professor in a university in Taiwan and uh, he's always writing stuff and he was dashing off books left, right and centre and his publisher asked him would he actually, could he write a book on teaching English or helping young adults with their English because as you know in Asia you really have a huge advantage if you can understand English and speak it. And he said um, he was really a bit busy but he had a friend who might be able to help and that friend was me and I wasn't doing much at the time and um, we, we, we wrote, wrote a book together. Um, that was our first book. That was 20 years ago or something like that. Hmm. Um, and, um, yeah, we, we, we regularly write them now. Um, we don't have to work that hard because publishers in Asia are incredibly canny. They will actually reproduce a book, give it a new ISBN, give it a new title, change it a little bit, and issue it as a new book. So... Um, they will say that. They'll say that that's exactly what it is um, on the, in the introduction and on the back cover. But the thing is that people in Asia tend to like new things. And uh, if you write a book and it's been hanging around on, on, in a bookstore for several years, it, it won't sell. So, um, so I say I've written about 20 books, but I, I'd say there's probably about 12 or something like that. And the others are actually revamps of the other ones. So... Yeah, so there's three streams to my writing. I think English literature. Um, I have a new book now which is just finished, which is called Walking Literary London. It's a very big book. Um, it's with the publishers now, and it's being edited. It'll come out next March. Um, and so there's been literature, there's been history, literature, and English uh, learning. That, those three things I do, really. Well, it, it's a, a wonderful uh, bibliography, and uh, we will have a link to your site, stephenbrowningbooks.co.uk, so folks can check all of those out. Uh, just some wonderful history, and uh, both literary history and uh, ge geographical history, uh, looking at uh, Norfolk and uh, Norwich. Uh, so wonderful uh, additional uh, angles for people to explore with you. Uh, so, also, can I just say that the, the introduction uh, for this book on Sherlock Holmes, yes. I, I read the introduction. It's called the prologue. It's a chat between Holmes and Watson in Simpsons. And I did that instead of an introduction. Uh, you can actually hear that as well. On Wonderful. Um, any opportunity or any chance uh, that you think uh, uh, people will be able to maybe take an audio version of this along with them as they do their walks in London? Uh, that would be wonderful, wouldn't it? I, I think that really is in the hands of the publishers and depends how well it sells. Um, it, you can issue e-books, can't you? They cost pretty much nothing to issue. Um, but I think an audio thing, I've done, I've done various audio stuff myself to do with the English speaking stuff actually in, in Taiwan. And I know it's, it's quite complicated and expensive business to do that. Um, so that would be wonderful. I'd love to see that, but I think we just have to wait and see.
Well, let's let's see if we can get everyone uh, to go out and purchase On the Trail of Sherlock Holmes by Stephen Browning from his publishers at Pen and Sword History. Uh, it's really a, uh, a wonderful and remarkable book that is so much more uh, than you might think it is just by simply glancing at the cover. Stephen Browning, thank you so much for joining us here on I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere. Thank you, Scott. Thank you, Bert. It's been a very great pleasure to talk to you. It's a wonderful thing, these interviews, because we encounter so many unique personalities, people with such interesting experience and scope. And um, really enjoyed talking to Steve. And it is a distinctive and remarkable book, you know, that's uh, a great guide, a great introduction for Holmes. It also covers things like Oscar Slater and The Great Game. It's um, a lovely bit of work. It is. And, you know, the thing that strikes me about it, Bert, is that, you know, we were talking to Stephen after the show, after the interview, and he uh, basically admitted to us that he is not a, uh, a groupie Sherlockian. He is not a joiner of sorts, which is fine, right? I mean, we have all kinds of people in this hobby of ours. And his book, I think, works extraordinarily well, whether you are part of a group tour, a part of a group that is doing an outing, uh, and following some of these walks, or if you simply want to take the, take it on your own and explore uh, the city and the byways of where Sherlock Holmes uh, trod. And I think that's, that's the marvel of this hobby, is you can certainly be a solo practitioner, a solitary cyclist, as it were, <laughs> um, or you can uh, join forces with other people and, um, and find your way. If you haven't paid a visit to mxpublishing.com recently, now is the time to do it. Looking through their new releases for the month of June, you'll find no fewer than seven titles from which to choose. Everything from The Experience Club, The Crystal Palace Murders, The Lost World Reimagined in Lego, The Adventure of the Bloody Duck and Other Tales of Sherlock Holmes, Sissy Holmes and the Case of the Dead Hypnotist, and of course he pushed him and other Sherlock Holmes stories, Volumes 1 and 2. In addition, it's also a great time to hop over there and check out the MX Book of New Sherlock Holmes Stories. Parts 21, 22, and 23 are out with scores of new Sherlock Holmes stories. Volume 21 takes us from 1875 to 1877. Volume 22 takes us from 1888 to 1895. And Volume 23 takes us from 1896 to 1919. Some creative storytelling there by a number of authors under the MX Book of New Sherlock Holmes Stories, edited by David Markham. Whatever your reading pleasure is, you can find something to supply it. Just go to mxpublishing.com and tell them iHose sent you. Ah, 
That's right. It's it's that time once again. It's everyone's favorite Sherlockian quiz show. It's Canonical Couplets, where we give you two lines of poetry, and we ask you to fill in the blank with exactly what it is we were hinting at. If you remember, in the last episode, episode 242, we gave you this clue. Was it nature's settled order that Holmes's client be pursued? First a card game on the water, then a bowling alley feud. Bert, do you know which Sherlock Holmes story we are talking about here? Oh, yes. Very dramatic. It's the great case. I love it. It's about the gold king and the evil dentist. That's the case Watson called The Problem of the Sore Bridge. Amazing. Thank you. Yeah. Um, it, that, that is an amazing answer, Bert. And um, naturally, it is incorrect. Oh, dear. No. No, right? Not again. I know. What are the odds? Um, probably 100 to 1. Um, no, we were looking for... Uh, well, actually, before I, I disclose what we were looking for, why don't we turn to our, our old friend, Eric Deckers, who is always ready with a quip and see exactly what he had to say. He says, it's the story of the existential philosopher who doubts everyone else's existence, except that uh, that of creatures with one eye. It's the adventure of the solipsistic cyclopist. Cyclopist. Uh. <laughs> That's easy for you to say. Solipsistic cyclop cyclopist. <laughs> Solipsistic wow. cyclopedist ran around as we could see. It's got to be. You, know, you, could, you could do a lyric around that. If only Stephen Sondheim were still with us. I know. I know. Solipsistic cyclopedist. Da, 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 da. Hmm. Well, you're on to something. Um, well, clearly. Well, I hope I get off it. Yeah. <laughs> Eric was on the right track. He said, except if you read that title aloud, you might do yourself a mischief. And you are so right that, Eric. Uh, so instead, it's probably the adventure of the solitary cyclist. Oh, and right. yes, that is exactly what we are looking for there, the solitary cyclist. Well, uh, that means that uh, we need to uh, dip into our bag here, uh, assemble the names, and give our prize wheel a big spin. Watching it go around... Coming to rest on number 37. Number 37. And that corresponds to well, David Townsend. <laughs> David, congratulations. A new name in the mix here. Good to see you. Uh, we will have a copy of what? Oh, uh, but no, what did we have? What did we? Oh, I know. It was something from the vaults. Something from our IHO's vaults, which Tony Katroki has been uh, very generous in helping us to restock. So thank you for that, Tony Katroki. And we will send that on its way. And just a quick note to other past winners of the, uh, of, of the canonical couplet here. We are a little behind in our prize mailing. Uh, so stay tuned. We'll be getting back on track with the U.S. Postal Service and making sure that you are well taken care of. And now, we turn to this episode's canonical couplet. Here we go. 
A victim dead before he fell, a singularity. A quarrel in the morning room, but where to find the key? If you know the answer to this episode's canonical couplet, put it in an email addressed to comment at IHearOfSherlock.com with canonical couplet in the subject line. If you are among all of the correct answers and we choose your name at random, you'll win. Good luck. And you will win, in this case, a copy of On the Trail of Sherlock Holmes, which we've been talking about here with Stephen Browning. Well, um, what's on the trail of this episode, Bert? Well, I think it's um, happy trails to you, isn't it? You know, we're at that point where we just sort of look at the horizon and say, happy <laughs> trails to you. And, yeah. Until we meet again. Well, until we meet again, I guess I remain triggered. <laughs> <laughs> and for those of you who don't understand that reference, Trigger was Roy Rogers' horse. And Roy Rogers and Dale Evans always sang Happy Trails at the end of the Roy Rogers show. So right. it's a long way of saying this is the very triggered Scott Monty. And I'm the perpetually saddle-sore Burt Wolder. <laughs> and together, we say... The, the Games, games of Foot! <laughs> the, the Games of Foot! You know, I'm afraid that in the pleasure of this conversation, I'm neglecting business of importance, which awaits me elsewhere. Thank you for listening. Please be sure to join us again for the next episode of I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere, the first podcast dedicated to Sherlock Holmes. Goodbye, and good luck, and believe me to be, my dear fellow, very sincerely yours, Sherlock Holmes. Sherlock Holmes.